Well, there are many, many reasons to celebrate today. Um, today marks an important step towards our coming together again as a whole church family in worship. Uh, we're not there yet, but as Dan said, there are green shoots. We're on the way. Today marks the beginning of British summertime, when the nights get shorter and the days get longer, the weather improves, and spring is well and truly on the way. And in the church's calendar, as we've already been celebrating, today marks Palm Sunday, commemorating Jesus' kingship and triumph. So in many ways, today is a great day, a cause for joy. But still, as we all know and as we feel, long, dark shadows remain over us. Life is still incredibly hard for many, and I know that many continue to feel discouraged and disappointed with the way things are. So as we come to see and to hear from Jesus this morning, let's pray that he would give us just what we need. First, some words from John Newton's hymn, Though Troubles Assail. <clears throat> no strength of our own, nor goodness we claim. Our trust is all thrown on Jesus' dear name. In this our strong tower, for safety we hide. The Lord is our power. The Lord will provide. Lord, we earnestly pray that we'd be nourished by you this morning. Please provide what we need. May your will be done as your living word confronts us, humbles us, comforts us, and lifts us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that incident in the temple is really the culmination of all that we saw and heard last week. It's... Um, Palm Sunday part two, if you like. Having arrived in the central city, Jerusalem, um, described in Psalm 48 as the city of our God and the city of the great king, Jesus immediately goes to the central place of worship, the temple, the symbolic place of God's presence, protection, and glory. But what does he find there? Well, not a sanctuary of devotion and uh, praise and worship. There Jesus finds a busy marketplace where, bus where business is booming. He sees and he hears the hustle and the bustle of the buyers and the sellers and all the animals and the birds. Can you imagine the, the scene, the smells, the sights, the noise? But with Passover approaching, it seems that the temple authorities and the tradespeople have partnered together to take profit from poor, unsuspecting worshippers and pilgrims. And so in this incredibly dramatic gesture, Jesus overturns the tables and kicks everyone out because, verse 13, he says, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. He drives out those who are misusing the temple, profaning it, 
which displays his messianic authority and fulfillment of the scriptures. He takes on Yahweh's own words in Psalm 56, where it's clear that the temple was to be a place where God met with his people, a place of fellowship, of great importance, of sacrifice, not oppression and exploitation. It was quite the scene before Jesus arrived, and now Jesus causes an even bigger one. But what does this all teach us? Well, first, it teaches us that Jesus hates unrighteousness and injustice. He hates unrighteousness and injustice. Diane Langberg is a world-renowned psychologist, Christian psychologist, who has spoken all over the world and written extensively on power, authority, and abuse in the church. And her writing has helped me to see how power is ever-present and inherent to all human relationships. Power was given in creation for human beings uh, to use wisely, to rule, and to bless. And there are many types of power, verbal, nonverbal, emotional, physical, psychological, cultural, and spiritual, to name just a few. And all of those powers can be a great source for good. For instance, when a tiny baby cries, she might rouse her sleep-deprived parents from their slumber to go and tend uh, to her. The baby may only be a few days old, but she has power over her independent grown-up parents. However, when power is abused, untold damage can be done. In workplaces, in schools, in homes, and yes, even in the church. Sometimes, even in the name of Christ. You may or may not be aware of uh, the publication this past week of two further reports of abuse committed by evangelical church ministers. One of those which gained national attention has impacted upon us as a a family. The church in question is where Nicola uh, grew up in her teenage years and spent her, her student years as a member, and it's where we were married. I know that there are many others in our family at St. Paul's are also hurting in similar ways. But even if it hasn't impacted upon you directly, these reports may give rise to all sorts of important questions, maybe even doubts. You You might be left asking things like, how could such abuse thrive and for so long in a church much like ours? How could hypocrisy, unrighteousness, and evil exist in a church which simultaneously preaches the gospel, the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ? Why has it only now come to light? If we can't trust our church ministers, well, who can we trust? There are no easy answers to those sorts of questions, and I don't want to give trite and quick answers. For those of us entrenched in the the wider evangelical culture of which these men were a part, 
This is a time for lament, for listening, and for learning. But there's one thing I can say from this. Jesus hates unrighteousness and injustice. Jesus drives out anything and anyone who spoils the blessing and goodness of God's holy presence with his people. He has no time for false piety, hypocrisy, or exploiting others. He came to give, to renew, restore, purify his people, not to take from them, not to gain from them. I hope you noticed that when Jesus um, drove out all those exploiting um, the, the, the worshippers, the, the travelers who'd come to the temple, how in that moment others were able to come in. Verse 14, immediately the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Culturally, we value highly charismatic, gifted, confident, and strategic people. Of course, all of those attributes are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. But sometimes, cults of personality can blind us to what's really going on and how those misusing their power can actually really hurt people. That can be at school, that can be at home. It's a sad reality that domestic abuse has increased uh, during the pandemic, or as we've seen even in the church. Incidentally, that's why we take safeguarding as a primary, of a primary importance here at St. Paul's. And may I say, if you ever feel vulnerable to harm or abuse in any setting, there is help available to you, which you can seek discreetly. Um, just so you know, Margaret Clark is our brilliant safeguarding officer, and her details are available um, in church and on our website, and we've provided other numbers um, for other services you can call beyond St. Paul's as well. It's important to be open about these things because abuse is not always easy to spot. And perhaps that should cause us to once again reflect on and reevaluate our values, our value, what we value in ministry and in our leaders. How should we measure Christian leadership? If you're anything like me, things like reputation, influence, and success can so easily uh, pull me in, pull us in. They can seem more attractive at times than perhaps quieter uh, Christian virtues, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Of course, the chief priests and teachers didn't get that. After they saw what Jesus had done, the shouts of the mob of children in the temple courts, um, they, they, were, they became indignant. Um, they said in... Uh, in verse um, 14, oh, sorry, verse 16. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked Jesus. And Jesus says, yes. Do you? He confronts them. He flips the question back on them. 
Do you hear them? These children are behaving exactly as they should, calling forth praise at the arrival of the true King and Lord to his city and to his temple. Children amongst us, if you, you may be little, but you know what? Your praises and your prayers to Jesus are heard by him. They're beautiful to him. He loves you. And sometimes it is we, the grown-ups, who need to learn from your faith. So Jesus exposes hypocrisy. The chief priests and, and the teachers had no interest in caring for the vulnerable, the poor, the blind, the lame, the children. And they had no place in God's household for the weak and the needy. And so, verse 17, Jesus leaves them. He left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Jesus has nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness. That's what the fig tree uh, sign or uh, parable, if you like, is all about. Jesus approaches a fig tree in verse 19, and it looks the part. It's full of leaves, promising much, but the reality is it's fruitless. It's empty of nourishment. And so Jesus curses it, not because he's hangry, you know, hungry and angry. Rather, he curses it as a sign, a, a parable of his hatred towards unrighteousness and injustice. It's a warning of judgment on the spiritually barren and the hypocritical leaders who exploit the worship of others to serve themselves. Now, that's a warning to all of us, of course, but especially to those of us who are in positions of power in Christian ministry. The chief priests and the teachers, while they misuse the name of the Lord for their own gain, and so Jesus will have nothing to do with them. <clears throat> and you know what? That is a really good thing. Because second, it teaches us that Jesus loves the weak and the needy. He loves the weak and the needy. This passage is such a wonderful portrait of Jesus. He's utterly holy, as we've seen, but we also see his sheer goodness as he protects and safeguards poor worshippers. He cares for and heals vulnerable people. He welcomes and commends worshipping children. He teaches and encourages disciples. In the midst of all that's going on, and all that's happened in the church. If you feel discouraged or disillusioned, bruised and broken, well, I hope this beautiful portrait of Jesus um, leaves you with hope and healing today. Not because, by the way, we as a church are fine and sorted, unlike them over there, Rather, it is because Jesus Christ possesses real authority, messianic authority. He's the anointed king who's come to save and restore his people. 
high priestly authority. He's the mediator who enables our fellowship with God. So the church isn't in our hands. It's in his good and capable keeping. So he possesses real authority, but he also really loves us. The church is precious to him. She is his bride. So whether you're young, old, sick, healthy, whether you're male or female, in mourning or rejoicing, you matter to Jesus. If you know you've sinned, if you feel weak, powerless, or like a failure, you matter to Jesus. How do you know that? Well, because as Paul says, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to bear our curse, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him is true life and strength. Which brings us to our final few verses. Let me just read them again from verse 20. When Jesus saw, uh, sorry, when, when the disciples saw what Jesus did to the fig tree, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Prayer is central to the Christian life. I'm sure you know that by now. But what does this have to do with Jesus' attitude towards hypocrites and um, hypocrisy and false worship? Well, in contrast to the spiritual barrenness, prayer is the fruit of faith. Prayer is the acknowledgement that we are all weak and needy. It expresses our utter dependence on another. In prayer, I place myself entirely in God's hands. He is the object of my faith. And that should give us great confidence in prayer as we come to God. Because God is immeasurably powerful and does great things, things that seem impossible to us. We might be tempted to think that the church is a lost cause, or that our personal sins, our fears, our anxieties are too strong to overcome. We might think that our friends and neighbors and family members are, are beyond the loving, saving power of Christ. But none of that is so. The power of prayer is the power of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we treat God like a genie, of course. That would be to embody the empty faith and the self-service of the chief priests and the teachers, not the fertile faith 
of the children who praised Jesus, their king. They cried out, Hosanna to the king of David. They oriented themselves to him. By that faith, we say, your will be done. In certainty that God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, will give us exactly what we need. And you know, that prayer is in and of itself a blessing and reward. Because as we pray, we're drawn away from ourselves, including all the things that burden us and draw us down. As we pray, we draw near to God. Our love for him is stirred up, which molds and shapes our minds, our hearts, and our souls. So, as we close, um, some words from another old hymn. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Amen.